Hello and welcome to our December Publications Podcast. I'm Ed Vital from the University of Leeds and Chair of the Lupus Forum. And this month, I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague, Dr. Cece Mock. Uh, Cece is Chief of the Division of Rheumatology at the Tuen Mun Hospital in Hong Kong. So welcome. Hi, hi. So let's go on to our first paper. We've chosen three of them to be highlighted on our podcast this week. And I, I, I had a look at the first one, which is a post hoc analysis of the nobility trial with abinutuzumab in patients with lupus nephritis. And it focuses on preservation of kidney function. So we have talked about it before, but abinutuzumab is like the next generation, C, one of the next generation CD20 monoclonals. So after rituximab, another way to deplete B cells. And it has some advantages. The mechanism of B cell killing is a bit different. Um, so it's a type two CD20 monoclonal antibody, which means it can directly kill B cells. It doesn't rely on other, other immune cells to help do the cell killing. And it's also um, humanized. So um, we have already this trial, the Nobility trial, which is the phase two, was already published, showing that abinutuzumab met its primary endpoint of renal response. And there's a phase three trial in lupus nephritis and another one in non-renal lupus that are in progress. Um, so positive information about this drug. There's also some real world evidence. I've used it a little bit in my clinic as a second line drug after rituximab uh, and published that. Um, but the, the issue here is that when we uh, do lupus nephritis trials, the definition of renal response is usually based on an improvement in the level of proteinuria and no worsening in the GFR. And that's a good way to test the efficacy of drugs. But actually, the real reason we want to use these drugs is to stop people getting renal failure. And renal failure is much harder to study in trials because it takes long. It may not occur you know, for many years later and you need to follow large numbers of people. So th that PCR-based endpoint is a bit of a surrogate. It's not really our objective is to reduce the PCR, is to stop people getting renal failure. So this trial is a post hoc analysis of the data of nobility to look at this, these kind of actual, these really more hard endpoints of, of loss of renal function. Um, and that's important because it's possible that the relationship between reduction in PCR and loss of renal function might not always be the same for all therapies. You can reduce PCR with an ACE inhibitor or, or, or dapagliflozin, um, but those aren't immunosuppressants, so it might be different. So what they did here was, this was a two-year study, they followed the patients up for time to an adverse renal outcome, time to a renal flare, or time to a 30% or 40% decline in glomerular filtration rate. And um, these endpoints were all significantly differed, nominal significance, because post hoc this, between the arms. So has ratio 0.4 for time to a re adverse renal outcome, 0.43 for time to a renal flare, um, 0.2 for a 30% GFR decline, and 0.009 for a 40% GFR decline. Um, and you can see one of the survival plots on, on the slide there. Um, so that would indicate that abinutuzumab doesn't just reduce your proteinuria, it stops you getting renal failure as well in longer term follow-up 
based on slightly preliminary data, but still does really. The other thing that they looked at in um, this study is, I think, a variable that is quite interesting, that um, the EULA recommendation for lupus nephritis is that patients should have uh, both a renal response in terms of GFR and proteinuria reduction, but also have less than 7.5 milligrams of prednisolone, have both of these together. And the rates of achieving all of those targets can be quite low. So in this trial, we've all, it, we've also here got complete renal response and less than 7.5 milligrams of prednisolone analyzed. Now at week 76, which is primary endpoint time, the placebo, that was only 16%. On, that's on, on microphenolate and glucocorticoids, which we've often regarded as a standard of care, only 16% of patients meet those targets. But if a binutuzumab was added to that, it was 38%. Um, so... Uh, I think this is very positive information about the idea of adding B-cell depletion first line and in general in the concept of giving patients combination therapies, not just one agent, but multiple immunosuppressants as a, as a, as a future strategy. We don't yet have, you know, a binutuzumab licensed. We don't yet have the phase three study, but it says to me that microphenolate and glucocorticoids is not an optimal way to treat lupus nephritis, and it should probably be combined with either B-cell depletion or a calcium urine inhibitor, or maybe even both. Um, you you did a lot of the uh, earliest studies on combination agents in lupus nephritis, didn't you, Cece? What did you think about this one? I think this is a very promising uh, anti-CD20, the second generation, and it's more potent in depleting the B cells. And in, in the marine model, it's more effective than rituximab uh, in lupus arthritis. So based on this phase two results, so we are, I, I'm very eager to know the, the, the phase three, which is going on. I don't know whether it has finished or not, but we are expecting good results from the Regency study. And I think that we, in the recruitment of this, uh, this all the patients were treated initially with um, the steroid and mycophenoic. And I don't think uh, uh, these patients are refractory cases. So they uh, you, they use the NDCD20 upfront with the standard of care. Yeah. And this will uh, increase the response rate compared to standard of care alone. So this may be a more potent strategy in patients uh, with more severe lupus arthritis. So we have been discussing whether we should use uh, this combination as upfront therapy versus an add-on therapy when the patient does not respond. Perhaps I think uh, uh, we can identify those high-risk patients to consider upfront combination. For example, those uh, with the African-Americans, uh, they, they have a poor uh, a poor prognosis of lupus arthritis, and those with a very poor histology like the Crescent's, uh, um, uh, the interstitial uh, uh, information mm. um, and also TMA lesion, they have more uh, higher risk of progression to renal failure. Maybe these patients are worth a, a upfront uh, combination therapy. So, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, I agree. Do you, I, I mean, I've started using combination immunosuppressants now in most of my patients um, because I, I, I feel that all the trials of combination agents have been better is that is that what you do you you give more than one uh, we, we are we are we because uh, uh, we have the bilinumab and recently we have licensed the uh, anaphonomab of course anaphonomab is not a license for lupus arthritis and we are using more uh, combination uh, for high-risk patients more and more 
because yeah. we Pininomab, um, we use MMF, uh, as steroid and Pininomab. Of course, when we are using triple therapy, we will, we will not use very high dose steroid. And yeah. most of us will use a 0 0.6 milligram per kilogram per, per kg for four to six weeks, and then we taper. Or we follow the ULA recommendation using a thousand MIFA per 500 milligram for three days, followed by 0 0.4 to 0 0.5 milligram of per, per kilo. Yeah. So if a lower dose of steroid, we are not too concerned about uh, the MMF combination with uh, with uh, with the bilinear. The, the adverse effect may not be increased very much. So mm -hmm. we have we are not using a lot, but a few patients uh, they tolerate very well uh, with this combination strategy. Yeah, I agree. I think my I regard the stand my standard now is either four drugs or sometimes five. Four drugs being steroid, <laughs> oxychloroquine, mycophenolate, and yeah, yeah. usually, actually, now voplosporin is our most common combination. But it could also be rituximab. Yeah. Okay, let's go on to the next um, paper because this is another um, uh, biologics study. Um, so this one is about teletasoceps. This is another agent that we've mentioned a few times. The papers haven't been published yet, um, but this is an agent that was developed in China, and we've had phase two and phase three trials presented at conferences, uh, ULAR and ACR, reporting really very high efficacy, so very big differences in SRI4 response between placebo and teletasocept. Um, and this drug's actually already in real-world use in China as well, which is interesting. Um, so we have um, here real-world evidence for a drug where we actually haven't actually got the full published papers of the phase three trials, and it's not widely available around the world. What teletasocept is, is a a better, a more effective way of blocking the BAF system. So we're all used to belimumab, which blocks BAF. BAF is a survival factor that B cells need to mature and take part in immune responses. But, but BAF is quite a complicated system because you've got two ligands. You've got BAF and you've also got April. And then there's three different receptors. There's the BAF receptor, the TASI receptor, and the BCMA receptor as you go through B-cell differentiation in that order, naive memory plasmoblast. Um, and there's also membrane-bound BAF, not just soluble BAF. So um, the feeling is, is that belimumab may not block all of those. It doesn't block April, and there may still be some signaling um, of BAF, whereas teletasocept, which is a soluble form of the TASI receptor, would be more efficient in blocking both BAF and April and membrane-bound BAF. So it should be more effective. So um, what actually is in the paper that we're looking at today, this is actually data on real-world use. It's from China, 72 patients. These patients uh, were followed up for up to one year. So all the patients got 12 weeks follow-up. Some of them got 52 weeks follow-up. At baseline, they had quite active disease. They had a mean CVI of 9.88, which is similar. Most you know clinical trials have sort of 9.10 on CVI usually, 10.11. 33% um, of these patients with skin disease. 33% had arthritis. 47% had kidney involvement. 50% had hematological involvement. So uh, like a combination of what we see in non-renal trials and renal trials kind of mixed together. 
Um, and in this study, so obviously this is an open label study, so we have no control arm, but as shown on the slide there, you see a significant reduction in the sleed I2K um, by uh, 12 weeks, 24 weeks, 52 weeks, and also a, a similar reduction in the PGA score at that time. Now, the SRI4, uh, that was met in an amazing 81% of patients at 52 weeks, although it has to be said that only 21 patients contributed data at 52 weeks. If you go to the 12-week time points when all 72 of the patients had um, contributed SRI4 data, then 54% of them had an SRI4 response, which is still quite a high, quite a high level. So I think this is... This is Positive information about telecystoceptal is good to see it in a real-world context because I usually think in lupus clinical trials, the patients in the lupus trials aren't the same as all the patients in the lupus clinic. But there are some caveats to this. Uh, real-world open-label data, the patients will have had other management done as well. Um, so other drugs and things can be changed. Um, uh, and we don't have a a placebo arm or a control arm to to compare this to. I think the other people thing that some, you you'll probably know more about this than me, but the other thing some people I've heard say at, at, at conferences is that because lupus is tends to be more severe in like say in Chinese patients than it would be in European patients, that can mean that effect sizes look big in trials, uh, whereas a a trial that was done in a more sort of global population that might it might just be because of putting in more severe lupus is why the effects seem big but uh what what did you think about this one uh of course the limitation is this is a a, a retrospective study without a control arm uh but uh remember uh, in the acl um uh, meeting several years ago they presented the same group of, of investigators presented a RCT, a phase three RCT, uh, a placebo-controlled trial on telitazizab versus placebo in lupus. And that was a positive study with a significantly higher SRI4 rate than placebo. But that paper has not been published, so I, I, I don't have more details about that. And after that, I think the drug has been licensed in mainland China only, and therefore I encountered uh, not just this one, but uh, uh, several other manuscripts describing the efficacy of talitazizab in non-renal and renal lupus. And they all reported quite good, uh, good efficacy after 52 weeks or two years. Hmm. And, and the SRI4 response is even higher, it's even better than the BIS. Remember BIS, uh, the, the BIS 52 and BIS 70 study, the, the SRI4 response is only 30 something. And the BIS-LN study is only uh, 32, uh, increased to 43 with the combination. But in this study, they report an even higher percentage with uh, talitazizab. So it seems that uh, this agent is quite quite, uh, uh, quite effective in, in, in the treatment of lupus and lupus arthritis. And there are a few uh, uh, serious uh, adverse events as, as well. But of course, there's no control group. We, we don't know whether it, it is uh, the same as the placebo or the same as the standard of care. Mm. Yeah. So, um, and again, this uh, there are other companies trying to develop more effective block mm. ways to block the BAF system, aren't there as well? 
Um, so there was a tacitept, which is still, it, it, it had some problems in previous trials, but it's still, in, there's still some investigation of that molecule. Uh, there's also a molecule being developed by a company called Alpine, that's again, a, 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 like a more efficient, a more effective way to block the BAF system. So there may be other, you know, there may be continued interest in, in this class. Yes, do you know any uh, information about the further development of Etasisab? Because I, when I read the uh, literature, um, the period study, uh, uh, the period studies were prematurely terminated because of the infection, because serious infection after recruit, recruiting a few patients, and but later there's an, an, an a, a, another phase. I can't remember phase two, three study which was which was positive. So is there any any plan of the further developing this drug? I, I don't I don't actually know exactly the current status of these trials, but like you, I've seen there's still some yeah. discussion about this drug, so we'll 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 see. I think it's it's worth further developing uh, uh, the anti bath and uh, and the April, and yeah. this agent yeah. may be effective for for refractory lupus, maybe yeah. Should we go on to the last paper? This is a study on the association between on adherence to hydroxychloroquine based on the uh, serum level of the drug and uh, lupus flare uh, in a cohort of patients uh, from the SLIC inception cohort. And of course, you, you know the SLIC, the, the inception cohort consists of many patients, but not all the patients have a baseline uh, as a uh, as serum uh, hydroxychloroquine level available. They only selected those patients with a baseline hydroxychloroquine uh, uh, um, uh, level available, and the inclusion criteria was those of using the, the drug for more than three uh, more than three months, and then they followed the patient for uh, any uh, flares. They have a definition for lupus flare, and what they found that uh, around seventy to eight percent of patients were severely have a very, very low level of hydroxychloroquine, which indicate they are not adherent to the drug. And these patients were more prone to lupus flares uh, mm. after, uh, after a median uh, uh, follow-up duration of three years. And they also studied uh, the, the, the damage accrual after five, five years. Um, which is also significantly higher in those patients who had almost undetectable hydroxychloroquine level due to non-adherence. Mm. Yes. One, yeah, one limitation of this study is that they only uh, uh, try to study the baseline level. They, there's no information on whether the adherence to hydroxychloroquine improve afterwards. And you know, patients who are not compliant to hydroxychloroquine, in, in my in my patients, because in in like many uh, Asian patients, when they they because of the difference in culture, they they want to try the alternative medicine. So some of my uh, my patients, despite explanation, they are still not very adherent to hydroxychloroquine. So when they are not too Compliant to this drug, they are also very prone to non-compliance to other medications as well, like mycophenolate and acephalopine or steroid. So we don't know whether uh, the increase in flare is just because of the non-adherence to hydroxychloroquine. 
and they don't have any information of their adherence to mycophenic or, or other immunosuppressive drugs. And some of our patients are very afraid of um, uh, uh, the, the hydroxychloroquine-induced retinopathy and also skin pigmentation, especially in younger ladies. So this may be the reason, uh, usually it is the main reason for non-adherence to hydroxychloroquine. Yeah, I, I actually broke down the exact same comment. Yeah, that is it, are they, if they're non-adherent to hydroxychloroquine, does that mean they're non-adherent to other drugs? And also, maybe if they're not adherent, severely non-adherent to hydroxychloroquine, they may be doing other things with their health, not just the medicines they take, but also attendance at appointments or uh, lifestyle yeah. factors. They may be, they, you know, they may be less conscientious about that. And they, that may be the reason. Um, and uh, I know that uh, the other thing I noticed they, as they commented on in the discussion of this paper that they, this isn't the first study to look at hydroxychloroquine levels and, and outcomes. And some of the previous ones ha have also said that factors that predict non-adherence could be things like race, ethnicity, disease duration, educational level, younger age, worse disease activity. These things may predict less adherence to hydroxychloroquine, and those things may also predict the bad. So there is a question about the causality here, um, about whether it's necessarily not taking the drug that causes the people, these people to get all of these outcomes. For example, I, I was thinking when I was reading it, that if um, a patient, for example, had some mild neuropsychiatric lupus, they have a, some memory loss and some cognitive dysfunction. I think this can sometimes be a reason for poor, poor adherence to medications, but it may also be a sign that this person's just got worse lupus. Um, and, and so it might be that the features of their lupus cause the non-adherence and the, the bad outcomes rather than the other way around. But saying that, I still thought that still make I don't do hydroxychloroquine testing at the moment in my clinic, but I still kind of thought if you did do it and a person had a very low level, that still suggests that coming in with an intervention, spending some time talking to them, monitoring a bit closer education may be worthwhile. Even, even saying everything we just said about it could be the other drugs, it yeah. could be the, the lupus that's making them forgetful, it could be, you know, like it, it still suggests to me that there could be benefit for these people. In, in more intervention? I think in, in, in my locality in Hong Kong, we don't have uh, this hydroxychloroquine uh, level check as routine. And previously, I have done a, a study on the serum because we have stored the serum for our patient, we send it um, to do the level, the serum level as a lock. But you know, in most studies, they, they use whole blood. So do, do you assay the whole blood or the serum level? It seems that the stability is not affected if you use serum and there's no urgency of sending the serum test uh, within yeah. say two yeah. weeks. Yeah, it's- I, I don't do it. And we did a recent survey of hydroxychloroquine use amongst BILAG members in the UK and, and their colleagues. Um, and nobody said they were doing hydroxychloroquine testing. So in the it's, UK, it's not we're not really doing it, but I think may, maybe we should. We do microphenomic acid testing quite yeah. commonly, of course. Um, so maybe we should do hydroxychloroquine testing too. So at least we can identify those who are severely non-adherent to, to, to the drug so that we can give, give them some counselling 
to yeah. understand the reasons why they don't want to take the drug. Yeah. And this will improve the compliance. Yeah, yeah. And and going back to this reminds me of a comment that we made in in a in a lupus nephritis webinar, going back to the first paper, that a lot of the things that determine good outcomes or bad outcomes in lupus nephritis aren't the drugs you choose. It aren't the medicines you choose. It's kind of the entire delivery of the care. You know, how how well are they are they diagnosed accurately, looked after, how more closely are they monitored, you know, who's looking after their their, their blood testing, their prescribing, all, all of all of these things go into creating a good outcome, not just the which drugs we choose to use. Okay, so that's all we've got time for today. So uh, thanks very much for joining me, Cece. It's great to hear your thoughts on the latest development in lupus management. Okay, thank you for inviting me as well. <laughs> uh, and, and thanks everyone for listening. So as always, you can find full PowerPoint slide decks for each of these papers at lupus-forum.com, which you can download to use in your own journal clubs or your teaching. Um, the Lupus Forum is, as always, free to access, all the content's free to download. Uh, if you register for updates, then you'll get an email when there's something new out. Um, and you can also follow it on Lupus Forum, or one word, on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Thanks again, and see you next time.